You are listening to the most comprehensive source for news and views about today's unions. This is LaborUnionNews.com's Labor Relations Radio and your host, Peter List. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Hey, thanks for turning on and tuning in to Labor Relations Radio. So I wanted to have a conversation with an old friend whom I've always found to be a wealth of information on policy issues and the happenings that are going on in Washington, D.C. And his name is F. Vincent Vernuccio, and he was actually the second guest that we had here on Labor Relations Radio back in February. And he is the co-founder and president of the Institute for the American Worker. And I've noticed over the last Uh, about a month or so that he's been writing a lot about the joint employer issue going on at the National Labor Relations Board, the independent contractor issue uh, that is going on at the Department of Labor, and a host of other issues. In any case, I wanted to have him on on Labor Relations Radio to kind of provide an update and see what else is going on. So here's F. Vincent Vernuccio. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. Well, Vince Vernuccio, welcome back to Labor Relations Radio. How are you today? Hey, Peter, thanks for having me on. Sure. So um, describe for the listeners real quick, if you could, the Institute for the American Worker. Absolutely, Peter. So I4AW was formed to uh, brief congressional staff, stakeholders, and other policy experts on labor issues. So the goal is to um, make sure that um, these targeted audiences are up to speed on everything that's happened with labor, unions, policy, at a federal level, across the country. And uh, we bring together all these diverse audiences to work together and to make sure that um, workers can maximize freedom and are you know, not compelled into joining organizations against their will. So in that, um, you just launched Regulation Watch, right? Is it- we did. So it's um, at I, the number four, aw.org. And you can go to resources and click down and you'll see regulation watch. And unfortunately, the Biden administration is now shifting away from um, the PRO Act, the legislation that is the top union wish list legislation that they could not get passed through Congress and um, is now going through the bureaucracy and issuing regulations targeting small business owners, entrepreneurs, independent workers. And we've launched Regulation Watch to keep tabs on all these regulations, whether it's through the National Labor Relations Board, Department of Labor, or some of the other agencies that Biden is using to essentially use his whole of government approach to force workers into unions against their will. And um, we are giving um, background, both 30,000-foot view and also a little bit more detail, and also the opportunity to comment when these regulations are open. Right. There's a couple of them that are still in their comment period, um, one of which is the joint employer issue going through the NLRB, uh, the independent contracting issue, which affects up to 59 million Americans. I've had a number of episodes on that. And then the Davis-Bacon one. Do you, do you want to go through these? I've, and one of the reasons that um, I reached out to you, because I've been seeing your articles talking about each of the issues, joint employer and independent contracting. And so I thought it might be 
interesting to have you on just about those. And then I saw uh, you'd sent over the regulation watch, which is a great resource. Yeah, absolutely. So let's uh, let's talk about the um, independent contractor rule and the joint employer rule. And I just want to make sure I have these right. Thankfully, um, the comments were extended. I still don't think it's enough time. But comments on the Department of Labor's independent contractor rule that um, would you know, essentially redefine employment to make it much harder for independent workers to work for themselves. Comments are due on December 13th of this year, 2022. Right. And the National Labor Relations Board proposed joint employer rule that could devastate the franchise model as we know it and all those small business owners. Uh, comments on that are due to the NLRB on December 7th. And once again, both of these are on I, the number 4aw.org. If you click on Regulation Watch, have all the details on these regs, how to comment, and the due dates. And I would definitely encourage your listeners uh, to go in there for more details. And, you know, Peter, happy to get into that now. Sure. Um, and I guess kind of the the overview of this, and we're recording this the day before the midterm elections. Um, so tomorrow's the elections. We'll likely find out most of the race's outcomes and who's going to control Congress sometime tomorrow night, hopefully. Um, the, hopefully, being the key word there. Right. So this is it, what you alluded to a minute ago, uh, was the PRO Act is not likely to pass, and, and it's probably all but dead, at least for now. And so what they cannot do legislatively, they're doing administratively through the agencies. And so with with respect to like the independent contractor issue, um, the thought with that, I believe, is that since independent contractors cannot be unionized, they want to make them employees. And so we have AB5 out in California, which was the maybe the test ground for it which has devastated a bunch of uh, professions out there. Well, well hold, hold, hold on, Peter. The Department of Labor went very far out of their way to say the proposed rule is not the ABC test. And according to the statute that they're going by, the Fair Labor Standards Act, they cannot do the ABC test but then you read what they're trying to do, and you know, essentially they're trying to accomplish the same thing. But to their credit, they went very far out of their way to say, no, 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 this is not the ABC test that we saw in California. But then you look at what the rule would do and realize, yes, yeah, may not be the ABC test, but you are basically trying to gut people's livelihoods and take them from small business owners, people working for themselves, independent contractors, entrepreneurs, and make them employees. And why are you doing it? You're doing it because it makes it easier for unions to come and then organize them. Right. So the ABC test, which is basically a three-prong approach, um, they've divided up into, and I'm summarizing this, but they've divided it up into a six-factor test to determine whether the the worker is going to be either an employee or an independent contractor. And this would be under the Fair Labor Standards Act, not necessarily the National Labor Relations Act, right? Right. Also, on Regulation Watch, um, there is the uh, case, it's called the Atlanta Opera case, 
um, that um, went through the National Labor Relations Board back, uh, I believe, comments closed in February, March of this year. Um, and that would have um, basically done the same thing, but under the National Labor Relations Act to make it easier for unions to organize. And it, it, the case there was um, Atlanta Opera. Um, and uh, essentially we're saying that, you know, the um, independent contractors that work for Atlanta Opera should really be employees and therefore the union should be able to um, organize them. So here, when you're talking about independent contracting, it can get confusing because you've got several different statutes at a federal level, not to mention state level statutes. And what are you looking at and what are the tests right now? We're looking at the Fair Labor Standards Act the FLSA, and how the test applies under that statute. And essentially, the, the, the Department of Labor is saying that's the economic realities test, which should not be confused with the IRS test, which is the common law test, which is actually much better for independent contractors. And then, of course, what they're also trying to do under the National Labor Relations Act, which is going through the NLRB. So, uh, Peter, I, I, I hope I haven't lost you or any of your listeners. Uh, once again, it's all spelled out on that Regulation Watch page to make things right. no, I, a little bit more clear. So for the listeners, um, and I think it's probably somewhat fruitful to explain the Fair Labor Standards Act basically covers overtime laws with respect to um, 40 hours a week of overtime if you're an hourly employee, et cetera, as well as child labor laws um, and several things that are not the National Labor Relations Act. Right. So NLRB is an independent agency. Then you've got the DOL, which is everything else, EEO, OSHA. Right. Yeah, that's right. So, um, yeah, under FLSA, I mean, yeah, you, you, you're talking about minimum wage. You're talking about overtime, things like that. But the problem is that, you know, you're also talking about, you know, the harder it is under one test or one statute, it doesn't matter how easy it is under the others. Because then if employers have to comply with one, it essentially spreads it across uh, across the spectrum. So um, whether it's the NLRB changing the, under Atlanta Opera, changing how um, workers are defined as independent workers or employees under the National Labor Relations Act, or it's DOL doing it with this economic realities test, and yeah, ha you know, happy to go into the diff the six different categories they're talking about, and the expanded categories, and the weights, and all of that stuff um, under the FLSA by DOL. It just it, the, the goal is to make it harder for people to work for themselves, put them in a box make them employees, and make it easier so uh, unions can organize them, despite what those independent contractors or entrepreneurs actually want. Vince, I've, I've had a number of conversations, and let me ask you this, and your opinion on this. Um, it seems as though this entire effort, so to speak, which may have started before California and AB5, um, the Dynamex decision out there in the California Supreme Court, it seems as though the entire effort spawned from the unions wanting to unionize Uber and Lyft as well as um, the port truckers out in California. And not being able to, they started going after the whole independent contractor model. 
and then out in California wound up catching a whole bunch of other people in that big net. Does that sound about accurate to you? Uh, if you're talking about trying, it does. Reality was something else. So what right. they did is, yeah, they had um, AB5, which um, essentially did the ABC test, exactly what's in the PRO Act. Um, they did that in California. And um, then even the bill sponsor of AB5 went, oops, uh, I went too far. And she right. granted all of these exemptions. And, you know, essentially they were just trying to go after Uber and Lyft. But then Uber and Lyft were able to come back and they had a ballot proposal to further um, do exemptions from AB5 and exempt themselves from AB5. And California voters actually voted for that. That was so Prop the, 22, if I recall. That was Prop 22. Uh, so the ABC test has been vastly watered down in California. Um, you know, it's still wreaking havoc. And on i4aw.org, we have worker stories. Um, a lot of them were before the exemptions, but how, you know, people like a woman named Shelby Given um, that was doing freelance teaching so she could take care of her child um, and work part-time actually had to leave the state um, because of what it did to her business. So she could keep working while taking care of her, her, um, her baby. Um, what is happening now, and what unfortunately you're going to probably see with even when DOL promulgates this rule, and if they do, and I'm assuming there's going to be a lot of litigation and there's going to be a lot of pushback on it. So even when they say, yeah, we're done, here's what you know is published, it's not going to be over. There's going to be you know lawsuits for a long time. Um, that what you are going to see is you're going to see the big boys being able to get around it. And that's what we saw in California and goes to the heart of what you were talking about just now, Peter, is that the people that are really going to be harmed by these new factors or this new interpretation by DOL, it's going to be the independent writer, the independent musician, the independent workers that don't have a massive company to fight for them. And they're the ones that are going to be left out in the cold. And, you know, it, it, it's... It's really unfortunate because I know a lot of people like that that thrive by working for themselves, and this is how they want to earn a living, and whether it's because they can earn more, because it gives them more flexibility, more time with their family, um, this rule could devastate that. Right. Well, and you touched on something a second ago, and I've raised this point. Um, so in California, they went back and they exempted a whole bunch of different professions. Of course, Uber and Lyft got their Prop 22 passed, so they're pretty much out. But they they had to go back and rewrite the legislation. And that was, you know, through their exemptions after the fact, and that was at the state level. If you do something like this on a national level, whether it's this or the PRO Act with the ABC test, how likely is it for the government, so to speak, the federal government, that is supposed to apply the law in 50 states plus its territories, how likely is it that they're going to go back and rewrite all these different little exemptions for all these different little occupations? Uh, I mean, it's going to be a, you know, a death by a thousand opinion letters. Um, so everyone's going to try to get their own exemption. We'll see what happens. I mean, I, I think by taking the signals of what the Biden administration wants, they're going to try to keep this as broad as possible. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, I think there's going to be a lot of lawsuits. There's going to be a lot of pushback. Um, and what my hope is that, you know, there's going to be injunctive relief soon. And then, um, you know, the regulation will get repealed. There's also legislation going through Congress now that will probably be reintroduced next Congress, the Employee Rights Act, that further solidifies what, you know, the better understanding of independent contracting an employee is and would make it much easier for people to work for themselves. Um, now, of course, you know, they'd have to override uh, President Biden's veto on that or we need a new president. Um, but it is a step in the right direction. I mean, I think support for that will only grow even as Democrats are starting to realize, yeah, you know, we can't infringe on people's ability to work for themselves. And, you know, you're already seeing at least some Democrats start paying some at least lip service to that. Well, in order for that to get through, not to get into partisan politics too much, um, that would be assuming the GOP were to take the House. And even if they get a slight majority in the Senate, you just hit on the fact they would need 67 senators to sign on to a, a veto-proof piece of legislation, regardless of what the legislation is. Exactly. I mean, and there are some bipartisan bills out there that would um, very much help, but um, it is going to be an uphill battle. And, you know, probably what you're going to see is not, you know, uh, you're, you're going to probably see movement and you're going to probably see a lot of Republicans standing up for independent work. Um, but it is going to be a, a heavy lift in even the environment in the next Congress. But that lift is going in the right direction where you can get something like the Employee Rights Act uh, passed sometime in the future. Have you seen any um, Democrats sign on to it? I haven't been following it that much. Uh, actually, you know, if you do go to uh, I4AW, we also have backgrounders <laughs> on multiple bills. And there are, not to keep tuning I4AW.org, but there are a lot of great resources out there. And, you know, there are a couple bills like um, uh, Congresswoman Stefanik has a bill and there's a couple others that um, are actually uh, bipartisan. And, you know, hopefully we'll see the light of day, um, you know, in the next Congress. I, I laugh when he did that, is, but as soon as you said that, I, I went over to the website. So I'm, I'm going through it now. <laughs> so on the resources, right? Um, under resources, yeah, you'll see a lot of the, the labor yep. bills that yep. are being introduced. And, um, yeah, you can, you can see especially like the Stefanik bill on there and a couple others that uh, deal with this. All right. So on the independent contractor, what we're essentially talking about is anybody who earns a living through a 1099. Um, and that could be a freelance gig once in a while. It could be uh, somebody who does it full time for multiple clients, if you will. Right. Yes. So what? Yes. And I'm sorry, I should also say the Save Local Business Exact uh, Business Act uh, um, um, also has uh, some good stuff in there. And that's, uh, I think, going closer to, to, to joint employer. But that's, you know, by Representative Comer or Senator Marshall. But there are good ones on there. But I, I'm sorry for interrupting you there. No, Peter. that's OK. So I, I kind of go into these basics on every episode that I talk about, you know, whether it's bills that are being passed or regulations or whatever, because a lot of people still don't understand how big a battle this is. And whether it's independent contractors or the other one, which I wanted to get into was the joint employer status. Like people really right. don't understand the ramifications of these things. And even people that, you know, 
friends and family members that I talk to all the time, you know, you have to really sit them down and break it down into basics. And I, and I say that not because you're close to DC, but a lot of times people on the Hill or around the Hill kind of understand this stuff, but they don't really like the people out on the streets don't. So I, I, I just touch on that as kind of background why I'm going into it. What about, um, so let's get into joint employer. Because that, yes. again, it's not a, it's not one that a lot of people understand. So okay, what is, and I'm not going to get in, I mean, I, I'm happy to get into kind of the legal back and forth and you, know, you hear things tossed around like Browning Ferris and what Obama right. did and then the rules under the Trump admission. Let's ignore all of that for a second. What is joint employer? And why is NLRB bringing it up and why are they pushing in the prolapse? So a joint employer is just like it sounds. It's you have two employers. They both exercise a direct control on an employee by both employers. And now the key there is what we're talking about is that direct control. What the joint employer rule under the current NLRB is trying to do or what was in the PRO Act um, is say that, no, it's not really direct control. It is indirect control. So even if you have a, um, if you have a company that, you know, isn't setting hours or working conditions and stuff like that, they're trying to say, yeah, they're really an employer, just like the company that is setting wages, hours, working conditions. Here's what is happening. This is an attack on the franchise industry and the franchise business model. That McDonald's on your corner, and this is the easiest way to visualize it, the McDonald's on your corner, that's not owned by McDonald's corporate. That's owned by a small business, a small mom and pop shop. And the employees that work there work for that small business. And that small business, you know, they do timetables, they do their hours, they set their salaries and benefits and all of that. That's up to the small business. What the NLRB is trying to say is, Okay, even though the small business is doing all that and has that direct control, McDonald's corporate has indirect control because McDonald's corporate says, well, you know, the restaurant has to be clean or they're using their brand, things like that. So they're saying, well, really, it's not – those employees are not the employees of the small business. They're the employees of the small business and McDonald's corporate. And with that, there is a ton of liability that goes with – having an employee as part of franchisors to limit that liability, you're going to say, well, we can't really do this concept anymore of letting people own their own businesses. They're essentially going to make them into corporate stores. And you're going to get that small business owner that's working hard because the business is theirs. It's their restaurant. You're going to make them take them from business owners into managers. And, you know, they could be earning a pretty good living running their own business, but they're going to take a hit because they're going to be managers and not owners anymore. And frankly, those managers or excuse me, those business owners that are on the ground, they're working directly with their employees. They know what their employees need. They know how to treat them well, attract new employees, keep their current employees happy. A distant corporation is not going to be able to have that connection and have that working relationship, and it's going to put yet another barrier between those employees and their employers. 
So the joint employer, essentially what it's doing, it would destroy the franchise business model. It would take small business owners, turn them into managers, and make employees not be working directly with those now managers that are actually at the store, but employees of a far distant corporation that may not know what's in those employees' best interest. It is incredibly scary. Well, and there's a side question to that is usually for a franchisee to get into a franchise, they have to invest a ton of capital, whether it's a McDonald's or a Dunkin' Donuts or whatever. There's a capital investment there, and they do that to be their own boss, so to speak. So then if they are no longer their own boss, what then happens to their capital investment? Yeah, it's the, and I don't know that anybody's answered this, but it's, it's one of those questions that's going to linger out there. And we're in, although you use the the example of McDonald's and everybody kind of thinks of McDonald's, well, I don't eat there, but this also applies to a Taco Bell, a Subway sandwich shop, Quiznos, whomever, you know, every franchise that you see out on the streets when you're going down main street, you know, and not to mention if you're, a building owner and you and you use a subcontractor who happens to be a janitorial service well is that janitorial service those janitors now going to become your employees like, that's right so i mean there is a lot of question and this is where the you know the independent contractors and, and um the subcontractors and joint employer all come together uh, and you know i think what the example you're looking at is like target if target um hires a cleaning service to come in after the store closes are those cleaners that work for the cleaning service now jointly employed by target and the cleaning service or is it just the cleaning service and um where the Biden administration wants to go and there was pushes towards this under the obama administration is that no uh, those cleaners would actually be jointly employed, even though they're working for another company and, you know, Target may do the contract for the cleaning company, um, say that they're joint employees. But let's go back, Peter. You made a great point about the capital investment and opening up a business is expensive um, and it does take a lot of capital. And one of the benefits of franchising is that because you're using a tried and true brand and because those brands usually have relationships uh, with lenders or do lending themselves, it is much easier for someone that may not have as strong of a credit background to get credit to open a business because that franchise is standing behind them and working with them to help them get that credit. So a lot of people that never would have been able to get credit, that never would have been able to open a business on their own, are able to because of the franchise business model and because those franchisors um, allow them or are assisting them to get that capital and get that business model and be able to open their own business. So a lot of people that are able to work for themselves now may not be able to, and people in the future that want to open a business through a franchise, those avenues may be cut off. And that is one of the very unfortunate things that could happen if joint employer, either by the Biden administration's regulation or by the PRO Act becomes law across the country. Right. And it's, um, I, there's, I call these the uh, four 
four horsemen of the apocalyptic fundamental transformation <laughs> because it's it's the joint employer it's independent contractor binding arbitration that's in the pro act where the government dictates what wages and benefits will be in a first contract and you know all these things you mix them all up and it's like this is hugely shifting what where we are going as a country or what at least we've been founded upon and it, it, and again it's you know We've got the midterm elections tomorrow, and it's going to be interesting to see where they turn out. But it's been a uh, we've started, as you mentioned, we've seen this starting to occur during the Obama administration. Um, and it's just continuing to and maybe not continuing to push forward like incrementally. It's happening a lot faster now. Yeah, and I mean, both joint employer and independent contractor uh, it seems like a lot of the talking points, and even in the rule, they, they try to go out of their way to say, oh, we're you know, just overturning the Trump rule or uh, what, what, what President Trump and his administration did, and we're going back to the Obama rules. But when you look at it, they're, they're actually going further. And you know, with joint employer, it's you know, further types of indirect control. With independent contractor, it's you know, more factors giving more weight to um, factors that are going to favor employee over independent worker. Um, so it's you know it's not just going back to the Obama levels. It's actually going further than that, and will be causing more harm. Yeah, you had um, I think it was in the piece you wrote on the Hill or in the Hill. Uh, the National Labor Relations Board is coming after almost eight hundred thousand franchise owners who employ eight point five million people. So that's just the franchise franchisers or franchisees, if you will, right? Right. Those are the small business owners that own these franchise franchises. Uh, they're the franchisees, the small business owners that are actually employing those 8.5 million people. Um, and, you know, things are going to be very difficult for them. I mean, we had um, at IWW, we did a briefing on this with, under the PRO Act. We had a guy named Damon Dunn. And uh, frankly, I'll, I'll, some of this interview, I've been cribbing him. He's a Duncan franchise owner. And, you know, he told the story of how he knows a lot of people that it was really hard for them to open a business, but because of the assistance by opening a franchise, they were able to do it. But he's the one that actually said, yeah, you're going to take a small business owner that owns a business that is making $200,000 a year, and you're going to turn him into a manager making 50. Um, and, you know, he owns a few Duncan franchises, and he would know because he's out there on the front lines. I'm curious because we're talking about the 800,000 franchises or, or franchise owners. What about all those other businesses that do subcontracting, for example? You know, whether it's a construction company that's an electrical firm that has a major contract with a large general home builder, right? There's, it's, we're, count, we're talking about franchises, but we're not including all the others out there because that's you know, yeah, most that's of the economy. Yeah, and that's going back to you know some of the things that the Obama administration was trying to do with their joint employer uh, rule. That was you know essentially you know bringing joint. That's where like joint employer and independent contractor um, where they cross, and that's that example of Target where you have uh, where you have an independent contractor where they contracted with a company to do the to do the store cleaning, and the store and the cleaning company was the employer of those cleaners. But essentially, they were trying to say, no, those cleaners are actually joint employees of both Target and the cleaning company. 
Yeah, I wonder if um, if there's any data out there on the number of and different types of subcontracting businesses, you know, private sector type data. And there may be somewhere SBA. Yeah, so I could, I don't have those at my fingertips. Yeah, it, it'd be worth. But yeah, I can definitely. Uh, t- Small Business Administration, maybe I don't know. I, I'm talking off the top of my yeah, head I'm right not now. Sure. But it'd be interesting because I bet it, it's a lot more than just the 8.5 million workers out there. I mean, I'm, I'm guessing I mean, this is absolutely. just a guess, but I'm thinking it's probably the majority of the American economy. Yeah. Interesting. So what else are you up to? I, I was, we're, we started talking about the uh, regulation watch and, oh, the other article that you had out there, um, I guess it was about a month ago, the... Uh, the efforts to end employer meetings on unionization, the EMUs. I like how yeah. you call them. EMUs, EMUs. Uh, so um, the NLRB's general counsel, Jennifer Abruzzo, she derogatively calls them captive audience meetings. So what's an EMU? Uh, EMU is essentially, uh, and Peter, I know you know this pretty well, Um, It is when employers basically tell their employees about what they think a union would do to their company. Uh, These are during company time. The companies are uh, the employees are paid for their time. It's, you know, like a safety or any other, you know, staff wide work meeting. Um, What the NLRB's general counsel is trying to do is saying, no, that's actually illegal. You can't talk to your employees employees about unionization and not only that you can not only not even have these meetings but you can't quote unquote target it or corner excuse me corner employees to talk to them about what a what you think a union would do now employers um, are already severely limited on what they can and can't say to employees if uh, they get a union um, organizing drive they can't do essentially and uh, Peter I'll, I'll let you use your acronym I'll use mine of tips I know you use something else uh, but essentially <laughs> they can't threaten interrogate um, uh, or promise or surveil uh, the employees. Uh, but they can say, well, you know, uh, we think we work better without a third party coming between us, but we want to work with you. Um, and they can give their views on unionization. And they can also tell employees about their rights. Um, you know, the union essentially can promise employees the moon during one of these unionization efforts. Um, and it's really up to the employer to either set the record straight or give them both sides of the story. Um, and the NLRB is trying to ban that. But he, he, here's the interesting thing. We did um, some polling with Forbes Tate Partners, or bi- bipartisan uh, polling firm, and found that when you have a just purely neutral description of these EMUs, only 12% of voters actually thought it was a problem. Um, even Democrats, only 10% thought it was a problem, and um, union members themselves were similar. So this is essentially uh, Jennifer Abruzzo's solution in search of a problem, but she's trying to stifle employer speech. Well, I think there's, and this is just, personal observations. I think there's always been a demonization of the employer talking to their employees, even just purely educating them on the law or, you know, what unionization is, et cetera. And I've been doing it for 30 years now. And 
you know, unions have always called them union busting meetings or the term, you know, that they like to use is captive audience meetings because you're having employees come in on company time to educate them about unions, et cetera. And the reality of what is an actual meeting versus how they describe it is, well, in part, it's because of faulty data they've been using for years, which goes back to a professor who started interviewing union organizers, really. I, I think you know her name out of Cornell. But, um, you know, they they have demonized it to the point where, you know, obviously the politicians are listening and trying to outlaw it. And then they've got, of course, Jennifer Abruzzo, who's a union attorney, you know, former CWA general counsel, et cetera, trying to rewrite the rules, which goes to, you know, does an employer have the right to free speech? And, and you mentioned something a minute ago of, of how an employer can give their opinion on how they think that it's better without or their company would be better without a union. Well, they're, now they're prosecuting, I think it's Amazon CEO for saying something to that effect. And and it was on a CNBC show where where he said, I think it's better to be you know union free or whatever his statement was. But that they're prosecuting now is saying, well, that's an unfair labor practice. So they're really they're really trying to curtail free speech in many respects. No, that's right. And uh, Peter, I actually just had a town hall article on that, which I can send you. Um, where, yeah, the uh, the National Labor Relations Board was going after Andy Jassy, the CEO of Amazon. Right. And um, I, I actually have the direct quotes. I did not get them from the complaint because the NLRB shockingly did, even though it was publicly available. And it was made on CNBC to Aaron Sorkin. Um, And also another example they gave was made to Bloomberg. Uh, They didn't actually quote, they just summarized it. But here's what he actually said that, you know, he thought it was an employee's choice whether or not they want to join the union. And he thinks they're better off doing, uh, not doing so for a couple of reasons, at least. Uh, He also said that, you know, you know, first at a place like Amazon that empowers employees, if they see something that they can do better for customers or for themselves, they can go meet in a room, decide how to change it and change it. That type of empowerment doesn't happen when you have unions. Peter, call the cops. You can't say that. According right. to the NLRB, and that's that 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 was the heart of the complaint. I mean, th- th- this is going to get tossed out. Um, but the problem was, I mean, th- essentially, the union got what they wanted. The NLRB got what they wanted because when they issued this complaint, you had headlines from across the country, like Amazon CEO Andy Jassy violated labor laws with union remarks. Federal agency alleges, and NLRB alleges Andy uh, Amazon's Jassy violated labor law and interviews. So they got the media firestorm. And I highly doubt you're going to see, you know, Amazon vindicated after NLRB frivolous lawsuit or complaint tossed out. So they're able to give Amazon a black eye. All of this comes down to um, trying to pressure Amazon through these sophisticated PR campaigns into taking away the secret ballot from their workers and recognizing the union. And um, what we're seeing across the country is that, you know, the Amazon labor union got one or two victories, but for the most part, workers are saying no. 
their latest efforts in Amazon in um, Albany, New York in October. Workers said no by a two to one margin. Um, and they have either been withdrawing petitions or failing um, since they had one or two high profile victories in the past. Um, so uh, uh, the labor union desperately needs, you know, this type of strong arming for employees. And, you know, th- that's why you're seeing these tactics. Well, if you include the RWDSU down in Alabama, um, the unions combined, ALU and and RWDSU combined, have won one election out of five. So, and that was the first one at Staten Island in, in back in April. So they're... Yeah, and, as and, you if mentioned. You, and if you look at the vote totals, they are, you know, a, you know, they won a majority of the votes, but it was, you know, a, a, a very small percentage of the overall employees. Right. Yeah. I wanted, as, there's like 8,000 employees at Staten Island and I think 5,000 voted roughly giving round numbers here. And they won, you know, by a few hundred, several hundred, but it wasn't the 8,000 that voted. Exactly. And it, and it wasn't even, um, over 4,000 that voted for the union. Right, right. Yeah, it's interesting. You mentioned the press um, and all the headlines. It's, I've, you know, you and I have been around this for years and years and years. And it's interesting how the press has seemed to go, um, what was at least news reporting, somewhat neutral on labor issues. There are, I call it the echo chamber now, but there are a number of, quote, mainstream outlets that have, very, very, very pro-union writers there. Like the New York Times, you'd always, you know, if you read Stephen Greenhouse and he was the labor reporter at the New York Times for years, you'd know he was pro-union just by reading his articles. But yeah. now you go to Reuters, you go to Bloomberg, you know, you go to these some of these major outlets. Washington Post just hired somebody from Vice, you know, a few months ago. And it is very pro-union. Left, left of center, as many of them are. But it's... Um, you just it's fascinating now because you don't really get the full picture as you mentioned when you read the headlines. And Peter, this is why what you're doing is so important. So they you know spreading the gospel here. Well, it's you know it's fascinating because it, it is, you've got uh, was it labor relations today or labor unions today with the the aggregator la- la- labor news today yeah labor news today right and so you know we just finished I think it was this past week we have published through the aggregator on laborunionnews.com 10,000 articles. And so, you know, and that's just been since January when we launched. And, you know, it's just just watching the headlines and where they're coming from. And we, we post both sides. So we'll post something from Slate, just like we'll post something from the Daily Signal. Or I think I've only posted one thing from Breitbart, but we'll have, you know, five things from American Prospect on there. So if anything, we're the articles we publish are more pro-union because they get more more headlines. But it's, you know, really for people to see what's out there. And I'm just, I've been following this trend over the last year, maybe longer, of how pro-union the media has, has become. And it could be because a lot of the newsrooms are, are unionized. But, I mean, and we do the same thing on Labor News today. You know, we, you know, present all, all the articles because we have it as a, we want it to be a robust uh, research engine. Um, right. But yeah, I mean, you know, uh, I mean, I think a lot of it is, you know, we're making a focused effort to get in front of reporters. So reporters have both sides. Because um, I mean, usually like you see with those articles, you know, they'll, 
call the union, they'll call maybe the NLRB, they'll call the company, and then they file their article. But, you know, they're not taking into account, um, you know, people like our senior fellows or those at I4AW that are doing this just purely from a free market perspective and trying to protect the freedom and the choice of workers. Right. Yeah. And, and then when they do call the company or, or cite something, it's usually on the eighth or ninth paragraph down. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. It's fascinating. Um, I keep using that term because it, it really is fascinating. I've been just, you know, been doing this for a long time, watching it and it's, you know, I'm seeing this change in, in scenery, so to speak. So what else are you up to? Well, thanks, Peter. I mean, the main thing, we're um, launching Regulation Watch right now. We're going to be commenting on the NLRB and the DOL uh, rules that we uh, just spoke about. We're continuing to go with labor news today. And we're going to be looking forward to the next Congress where, you know, we're going to probably be mentoring um, congressional staffers on what will likely be the Education and Workforce Committee. And uh, the, the, the joke there, if your listeners don't know, is that when Democrats are in control, it's the Education and Labor Committee on the House side. And when Republicans are in control, it's the Education and Workforce uh, Committee on the House side. They literally rename the committee each time, don't they? They rename the committee um, every time power shifts. Yeah. It's amazing what they do in Washington. <laughs> A lot of people don't even know that. Yeah. Well, uh, next year, you know, I, I, I guess we're, we're, we're speaking on the Monday before the election here, but uh, um, my prediction is it will be the Ed and Workforce Committee next year. Yeah, so a uh, question for you is with the elections tomorrow and presuming the House gets taken by the GOP, not sure about the Senate, what can happen during a lame duck session between now and January? What can they do? Uh, anything, anything more? Well, I mean, you know, um, you know, right now, in order to get anything done, it has to be done in a spending package, even in a lame duck, because um, the Democrats don't have the 60 votes to override a filibuster. Um, some of the major labor priorities, um, uh, Senator Sinema has, you know, consistently said she doesn't back the PRO Act. Um, Senator Manchin has said that he is not going to nuke the filibuster for the PRO Act. So, I mean, we'll see. We've tr we've seen them try to slip up um, a lot of labor provisions in some of the must-pass omnibus packages. I don't think we're going to see that. I don't know if any are on slate for lame duck, but uh, we're definitely paying attention. Probably the biggest threat that's coming right now is from, uh, you know, is from the regulatory space. DOL, NLRB, President Biden's whole of government, or he's even using the FTC and antitrust to try to encourage union organizing. So that that's a lot of the other stuff that we're paying attention to. Yeah, that's right. For the uh, for the listeners, the National Labor Relations Board um, signed, I think it was two so far, one with the Department of Justice, the other with the uh, was it FTC or, or another agency? The, uh, FTC, actually, they, they've done a couple. It's called uh, Memorandums of Understanding of how they're going to work together. And, you know, you, you've already seen uh, um, you, you've already seen the FTC and some of the appointees over there, uh, you know, essentially use antitrust as a bludgeon and trying to hold up mergers um, in order to get concessions for you know, essentially taking away the secret ballot from employees on unionization elections to make union organizing easier. 
Are you following anything with the uh, Kroger Albertsons merger? I know the the union wants to have that knocked out. Um, I have not followed it as closely as the Microsoft Activision merger, where you know, mm. um, you know, the FTC was trying to block that, and then magically, after uh, they signed a neutrality agreement with the communication workers, um, you know, those objections uh, evaporated. Right, and for the listeners, a neutrality agreement basically says that the employer will not. Uh, oppose unionization, and in some cases, those neutrality agreements have card check in them, right? That's right. So uh, basically, the employer agrees to a gag order to not tell their employees, essentially not have those EMUs and not talk to their employees about unionization. Uh, A lot of cases, they'll agree to give the union employee, you know, more employee information than is currently required and before it's currently and before it's required. So uh, giving them employees' home addresses, personal cell phones, emails, and then, of course, agreeing to recognize the union via card check, uh, which is essentially taking away the secret ballot from those workers, and that can lead to um, all sorts of intimidation and deception. You know, another facet that has not been brought out lately, um, and this was under the Obama administration Actually, the Obama NLRB back in, I want to say, is 2010, 2011. I was just having this conversation with somebody that there is something called um, pre-recognitional bargaining. That was the Dana Corp decisions. Do you remember those? Um, Vaguely, yes. So it's essentially because we're talking about neutrality, where an employer agrees to neutrality with a union, but prior to agreeing to that, engages in something called pre-recognitional bargaining. In other words, before I agree to neutrality, tell me what it is that we're going to have as a, a tentative agreement. VW did this as well, if you recall, with uh, with the UAW in Chattanooga back in 2014. Uh, yeah, and, and that was actually, and that was, um, uh, you know, that was before they realized that the UAW was not the um, German style uh, union. And you know, and and to VW's credit, I mean, they were trying to open it up and do members. Uh, almost like a members-only union where they would agree to working with the different unions as long as none got exclusive representation and had the monopoly on bargaining. Uh, but, you know, sadly, despite what the UAW was preaching, that's not exactly what they were practicing, and they wanted, you know, they simply wanted that monopoly, and they wanted to take away the secret ballot from workers so they could organize all of them and get them all under the uh, one-size-fits-all um, union contract, UAW contract. Right, but they had engaged in that pre-recognitional bargaining, which is essentially having kind of like a sweetheart union where they undermine the workers' rights for a backroom deal in order to get neutrality. And um, Yeah, Peter, I'll be honest, it's been a while since I've seen that, but you know, the bottom line is with neutrality, there's all sorts of there's all sorts of ways that you know the employees at the end of the day are getting the short end of the stick and you know it's usually in favor of the union and a a lot of the times it's either the employer saying all right we're going to give in so you'll go away and you'll stop this negative pr campaign like we're seeing now with like starbucks and amazon or you know it you know it, it could be those type of examples and you know frankly i would say that that's a um thing of value that is given to the union and that should be illegal one would think but and and the article i did on it back in 2011 was that this is the bottom in terms it's bottom feeding basically it's where 
you can essentially have a sweetheart union undermine the workers and all for the effort of unionizing them for the union. Get get your sweetheart contract with a sweetheart union. And I think if we continue trending the way we're trending and they outlaw captive audience meetings, they um, push more towards either card check or neutrality, that sort of thing through the FTC, DOJ, whomever, I think you're going to start seeing a rise of that pre-recognitional bargaining before, you know, before workers wind up, you know, going out to say the Teamsters or somebody else, although the Teamsters can do it as well. Yeah, it's definitely something to pay attention to. Yeah. Well, Vinny Vernuccio, thank you for coming back to Labor Relations Radio. I'm going to include all the links, uh, Regulation Watch, obviously, uh, A4AW on there, as well as some of the articles that uh, was the first, you know, that's the reason I wanted to talk to you anyway, because of the article you did on uh, independent contractor and joint employer. Uh, Great. No, thanks, Peter. And, you know, if your listeners want to comment, once again, that um, that joint employer rule, uh, you can go to i4aw.org and go to the um, regulation watch and you can get the link directly to where to comment. But for the joint employer rule, uh, comments are due on December 7th. And for the independent contractor rule to the Department of Labor, comments are due on December 13th. Awesome. Thank you very much, sir. It's good seeing you again and talking to you. Hey, Peter, always a pleasure. All right. Take care. Thanks. Bye. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. So that was Vince Vernuccio with the Institute for the American Worker. And I always enjoy catching up with Vince because he's got a lot of information. Um, I'm going to leave links, as always, under the audio portion of this episode of Labor Relations Radio to some of the articles we're talking about, as well as the Institute's regulatory watch or regulation watch. In any case, that wraps up another episode of Labor Relations Radio. I'm your host, Peter List. If you want to reach out, you can leave a comment under the audio portion of this episode. Reach out on Twitter at Workplace Report. That's at Workplace RPT. Or give us a call at 1-888-668-6466. Thanks for listening. Hey, Labor Relations Radio listeners, this is just a quick reminder. If you enjoyed Labor Relations Radio, make sure you share these episodes with your colleagues and make sure you and your colleagues visit laborunionnews.com and subscribe to our News Digest.